Now, this is the class I wanted to do. Actually, the one last night, that's pretty, that's actually kind of fun. Uh, but uh, the, the one I did this morning is more like, hey, you guys are wrong, you should stop doing that. Not just to you, those people over there. I, that's not what I'm into. I'm, I'm more into, here's Jesus. And like I said, in, in, in Bakersfield, we're doing an entire year. Our thesis, our theme is hashtag Jesus. So we're going to take about two or three months to go through Mark. Then we're going to take about three or four months to go through Matthew. Then we're going to take about three or four months to go through Luke. And then we're going to take the rest of the year to go through the book of John and midweeks. And we're just going to do Jesus the whole year. And I think that's a good thing. So what I want to do is I want to uh, kind of give you Jesus through the eyes of Mark. Jesus through the eyes of Matthew. Jesus through the eyes of Luke. And John. And then plus one. What's the fifth Jesus? By the way, how many Jesus are there? Well, that's a trick question. I mean, there's one Jesus, right? There's the actual person. But then there's the Jesus that we see through the eyes of Mark, which honestly, different perspective, okay? Different perspective. Right? So, it's people walk into the room, and what did you see? The perfectionist sees all the messes. And the artsy person sees the kind of the, the sort of the layout of the room, and, and I don't know. Everybody picks up different things, and, and so why do we have four gospels? I mean, only one story. Why do we even have four gospels? Because Jesus is too big to be contained in one gospel. Now, one of the things we could tend to do, which is not wrong, is try to distill the four gospels down into just one Jesus. Because in the end, there is just one Jesus. But I think it's, it's better since God said, I'm going to give you four pictures to look at four pictures and allow each author to give his or her description of Jesus and let it speak for itself and then just sort of swallow that one, do it one at a time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to help you to maybe do something a little bit different, maybe than you're used to doing, which is to read Luke as if Luke was the only gospel, and then what is Jesus if Luke was the only gospel? Wow. And then read Matthew as if Matthew were the only gospel, and then what is Jesus if Matthew were the only gospel? And, it, and then what you do is you kind of absorb them and take it in and, and read it for what it's worth, and, and, then, and then afterward you bring them together to give a fuller Jesus. Got it? Amen. So that, there's a book called Four Portraits, One Jesus by uh, Mark Strauss, who happens to live in San Diego. Uh, I believe Robert's actually met him. He's a pretty good guy. Uh, he teaches at Point Loma Nazarene. All right, And I, I recommend that book. There are other books that do the same thing. But this book is really great. Mm-hmm. So basically then he breaks down the four Gospels and he basically essentially does what I'm doing here. I'm, there's a little bit of plagiarism going on here, honestly. Not a lot, but there's some. I, I, but, so I'm just going to do that, except I'm going to not do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm going to do Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, uh, simply because Mark was probably the first one written. Uh, we don't know that for sure. The scholars are convinced, but they're convinced about all kinds of stuff that's not true, so whatever. <laughs> I think it's probably true that Mark was the first one written. It, it, if you read Matthew and Luke, you get the sense that they probably had Mark in front of them. You just, I don't, but if you read, say, Luke, you don't get the sense necessarily that Mark had Luke in front of him. It just, I don't know. Whatever, it doesn't matter. So I'm going to do Mark first. 
And then Matthew, so basically then we're going to just break it down and ask, okay, what is Jesus in Mark? And then what is Jesus, etc. Got it? I'm going to spend the most time by far in Matthew and Luke, spend a little bit of time in Mark, a little bit of John, and then plus one, oh, plus one. The fifth Jesus. You can maybe guess where it's coming from. Okay. Mark. What is the Jesus of Mark? The Jesus of Mark is the superhero Jesus. He's the action figure Jesus. He's the Jesus who never stops moving. The theme of Mark is Jesus, Messiah and Son of God, suffering and servant and Savior of mankind. Right? And again, we're going we're gonna to talk about what the theme of Luke is. And you don't have to buy my version of a theme. You think about it for yourself. In fact, a really good thing to do is, if you want to study a book of the Bible, is read it two or three times, and then come up with your opinion about what the theme is. Come up with your opinion about what the key verse is. Come up with your outline. And then read the commentaries. Don't go to the commentaries first. That's a mistake. Go to the Bible first. Yeah. All right, and then outline the book for yourself. And then when you see their outline, you go, oh, I was pretty smart. Or, oh, wait, no, no, they're wrong. I'm, right, I'm, I'm more right than they are. Or occasionally, oh, yeah, maybe they're right, maybe I was wrong. It's okay. So the theme verse of Mark, I believe, I use the theme verse of Mark, is Mark 10.45. And as a church in, in Bakersfield, I almost did it again, Jan. As a church in Bakersfield, we're memorizing this verse together. And we, we say it every Sunday morning, all right? It's kind of a weird thing. But <laughs> for the, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself life as a ransom for many. All right, just a few characteristics. I'm going to only spend about five minutes, actually, on Mark. I'm going to spend a lot more time on Matthew and Luke. Uh, one thing about Mark is very fast-paced. I mean, Jesus going here and he going there and over there over there. And he just never stops moving. All right, uh, Mark, let me give you an example. The word euthys, E-U-T-H-Y-S, is used in the book of Mark 42 times. And the book means immediately. The word means immediately or right away. Now, the book, that word is in Matthew five times, in Luke once, and in John, not at all. So in John, Jesus, he's, he's kind of like... <laughs> Laid back Jesus. Now, again, take this with a grain of salt, but this is Mark's perspective. To give you a feeling for how much um, uh, Mark has the word immediately, in Mark uh, 1, verse 10, it says, Immediately, as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw him in the open. In Mark 1, verse 12, he says, Immediately the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. And then in Mark 1.18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. You're more aware of that one, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, in um, Mark 10.21, and Jesus began immediately to teach. And in Mark uh, 1.23, immediately a man in their synagogue was possessed by an inferior spirit to cry out. And verse 28, news about him spread immediately all over the region of Galilee. And uh, Mark 1.29, immediately as they left the synagogue, blah, 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 and I'm just getting started. Mm. All right, so Jesus, man, he is just out there. And, and when he starts preaching, his movement grows, whoo, immediately. <laughs> right. I like to use the illustration of John Madden. 
Remember he said, boom! Right? I know it was an ad for tough acting to acting, but, you know, Jesus is like, boom! Boom! He's going over there! I mean, Jesus never slows down. The only time he ever slows down is he's praying, and he's praying into the middle of the night. Did the guy ever sleep? The Jesus of Mark, he hardly ever slept. I'm kidding. Jesus was a man of action. He was a man of radical lifestyle. He was radical. You know, it, so the question you should ask as you read Mark, are you a man or are you a woman on a mission? Because mm -hmm. now I'm telling you, the, the, the Messiah of Mark is on a mission. Mm -hmm. He's not slowing down. Are you a person of radical lifestyle, of service and suffering? Because mm -hmm. that's Jesus in Mark. Wow. Radical serving, radical suffering. There's a lot of material on discipleship. The two Gospels that talk about discipleship the most by far are Luke and Mark. Mm -hmm. Another thing about Mark is people are amazed. They're just blown away by Jesus. You don't see that so much in John or even in Luke. All right, in Mark 127, what's it say there? I can't remember. All right, the, the people were so amazed. They asked each other, what is this? They're in awe. It's just everywhere you turn in, in Mark, people are like, who is this guy? They just can't believe it. I mean, when Jesus calms the, the, the water, they're like, they're completely blown away. In fact, they were so blown away, they were terrified of him. So this is the action-packed, authoritative leader about whom people are amazed. That's why some people have characterized the book of Mark as being... The, the, the gospel for the Romans who love that kind of stuff. Mm. I don't know, whatever. That's just one of those things scholars go. It was not written in Latin. It was written in Greek. And it is true that uh, Mark spent time in Rome. We know that because Paul tells us that. And Mark was the right-hand guy of Peter. All the early church fathers say that. And in fact, the early church writers agreed that Mark was essentially the mouthpiece for the apostle Peter. So really, when you're reading Mark, you're probably reading Peter's view mm. of Jesus mm. to a large extent. Another thing about Mark is in, in Mark, the apostles are a bunch of bumbling idiots. Mm. <laughs> I mean, they're, it, that's, in Matthew, Luke, and John, it's not, not even close to that. I mean, <laughs> in, in Mark... They fail to understand. They're surprised at his power. They don't figure out he's the Messiah. They're prideful. They're self-focused. They give us the right hand, and they're arguing about who's greatest. And they, they miss Jesus. It's interesting because probably, you know the scene at the end of Mark, the guy who's in the garden and he loses his clothes. Apparently he's walking around without underwear, I guess. Right? You know that guy? That's probably Mark. Probably Mark. And, you know, so another thing about, about Mark is that Jesus is, you know, he's frustrated with his apostles pretty often. Another factor there. He has to remind them repeatedly. Uh, another thing is, you know, in, in all the other Gospels, we see restoration scenes where the, their disciples are restored to a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says, you guys are okay. Not in Mark. There's no scene of any of the apostles, like Jesus said, comforting them, you know, you'll be okay. I don't think that's a coincidence. All right, now I'm going to spend, like I said, five minutes in Mark. We're going to spend a lot of time in Matthew.
Right, uh, Matthew. Matthew is the gospel that really reveals Jesus through his fulfillment of private question. Yeah, I was just going to ask, what do we do with Mark chapter 16, verses 9 20? All right, there you go. So, um, Mark starts uh, so sudden, it's like, where was the beginning? And Mark ends so sudden, where was the end? So people said, well, it needs an ending. And they put one on there. That's uh, Mark 69 through 20. Now, there's debate about that. Uh, There's some people who believe Mark uh, 69 through 20 is part of the original Mark. There there are um, manuscript reasons to question that. Virtually none of the early manuscripts have it there. Uh, At least one of the early manuscripts has an alternative ending to Mark. um, So, more likely than not, Mark 16, 9-20 was not part of the original book of Mark. Okay? So go there. Uh, Is there anything there that would change your view of who Jesus is? Probably not. But you know the thing? Those who believe and are baptized will be saved. It sure would be nice. I don't use that passage when I'm doing a baptism study. And honestly, I don't preach from Mark 16, 9 through 20. Not that I would feel bad about it. There's no false doctrine there. And I would say whatever is put in there is probably put in there by Christians who, you know... uh, For example, there's John 8, the woman caught in adultery. It's fairly likely that was not part of the original John. But I'm, I'm completely convinced that that's a genuine story. There were many oral traditions about Jesus. And that was... I don't know, it's like, that was such a favorite story of all the churches. It's got to go somewhere. So those are the only two extensive parts of the New Testament, extensive parts where probably the King James Version of it, probably that section was not in the original. That's Mark 16, 9-20, and uh, John 8, actually John 7 in the last verse and 8. So those, those two. Uh, to me, losing Mark 69 through 20 is like, okay, you know, whatever. But honestly, mo- losing the woman caught in adultery, that, that's not, I don't like that. Now, but I'm convinced that that story is true. That's actually what happened. In fact, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, there's different manuscripts that have it somewhere else. Right, so probably it's, it's likely that was in one of the original Gospels, but it just ended up there in, Mark, in John 8. Okay, got it? Good, so back, let's talk about Matthew. Now, Matthew is the Gospel that pre- pre- presents Jesus as the one who fulfills the messianic expectation. So in Matthew, Jesus is revealed through the way he fulfills prophecies. Now, that's not the only way Jesus is revealed. Just like in Mark, it's not just only the man of action, you know? Mm-hmm. So when, we, when we're describing the different Gospels and the characteristics, that's not like that's all that it is, but it certainly is what makes Matthew clearly distinct. Because Matthew quotes prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, again and again and again. And not only does Matthew quote Old Testament prophecy, he uses it to explain who Jesus is. All right, we're going to see that Luke explains who Jesus is through a very, very different lens. Very different lens. Right? So in Matthew, Jesus revealed through his fulfillment of prophecy 
and of the Jewish messianic expectation, including the fulfillment of, prophet, of foreshadows, prefigures, and all that. The theme of Matthew is Jesus is the Messiah, that I would put square brackets, the Jewish Messiah, is the culmination of salvation history, and he brings salvation from sin to all people. All right? Let me, let me read that again. It's in my notes, but I, I, this might be worth writing down. This is my own version of the theme of Matthew for what it's worth. Jesus, the Messiah, is the culmination of salvation history and springs salvation for sin to all people. Sort of salvation history. The connection to the Old Testament is huge in Matthew. Some people propose that the original Matthew was in Aramaic rather than, than Greek. There's no evidence for that. It's kind of a fun theory. But I would say this. Matthew is certainly the most Jewish of the four Gospels. Some people would say that's John. Well, you know, I'm not going to get into that debate. It's just my way of thinking about it. Theme verse of Matthew. I want to spend a little bit of time there. Theme verse of Matthew, I believe, is this one. Jesus said, I did not come, uh, uh, I did not come to, um, to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come to, not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To me, that's the theme verse of Matthew because it explains what Matthew's trying to do with Jesus. He's trying to show Jesus as the Messiah, the one who fulfills the Old Testament expectation of what and who the Messiah would be. And even when uh, Matthew is teaching things about Jesus that we learn primarily from the New Testament, not the Old Testament, he still uses Old Testament to do it. And, and it's quite consistent. You know, Jesus fulfilled all the law and the prophets. He didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled it. Jesus fulfilled the law in many different ways. One way he fulfilled the law in that he, unlike any other human that ever lived, actually obeyed it. Jesus fulfilled the law in that he actually did what it said the whole time. The only one ever did it. Another way Jesus fulfilled the law is that he took on himself all the penalties of the law. That's another way he fulfilled the law. A third way he fulfilled the law is that he completed it. What I mean by that, he said, in the past it was said, but I say to you, because the, the Mosaic law was really, it was a shadow I mean, it even allowed for divorce. It, it said, you know, uh, don't hate your brother, or your neighbor rather. He said, love your neighbor. All right? And so a third way that Jesus completes, fulfills, brings to fulfillment the Old Testament is that he takes it from where it was closer to the kingdom of God, to where God would want it to be. A fourth way he fulfills the Old Testament, the law, is through types, prefigures, and foreshadows. So not only did Jesus fulfill all the prophecies, Jesus is the second Moses. Jesus is the second David. Jesus is the second Joseph. Jesus is Jonah, who was in the heart of the fish for three days and three nights, as Jesus was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And Jonah, who offered his life to save the Gentiles from pure death. And Jesus, who offered his life to save the Gentiles. And Jesus, who came from Nazareth, 
And, and Jonah, who came from gath Hefer, which is about two kilometers from Nazareth, he could walk there in ten minutes. So Jesus is the fulfillment of that expectation. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the, all the uh, festivals. The Passover points to Jesus as Passover lamb. The first of first fruits points to Jesus as the fulfillment of the first fruit, feast of first fruits. And by the way, Jesus was raised from the dead on the day of first fruits. Jesus is the fulfillment of tabernacles because he tabernacled amongst us, etc. He is the fulfillment of all the laws. He is the fulfillment of all the sacrifices. Everything in the Old Testament points towards him. We read that verse in John 5, 19. So this is, this is the Jesus of Matthew. The one who fulfills, completes, brings the culmination, the, the, the Old Testament expectation, and the Mosaic law. Got it? And what I want to do is I want to look at just a few examples. There are many, many, many. I look at a few examples of actual prophecies that Matthew uses not only to show that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy, but to explain who Jesus is. Because whereas Luke will explain Jesus through his ministry, as we'll see, Matthew explains who Jesus is through the prophecies and the expectations that he fulfills. All right? Now, I'm not going to go through this whole list. These are some of the Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in Matthew as Matthew describes them. There's the first screen. There's the second screen. All right? Oh, she's going to take a picture. Right? And then I'm going to go back to the first no, oh, I'm just kidding. All right. It's all about the website. It's all about the Power. Yeah, right. It's all in my website. Uh, I don't know if y'all know Rob Brumley. He's talking about PowerPoint and you know the point on it. He says, "This is my PowerPoint." He was a principal. You know? It's a principal. It's his PowerPoint. Anyway, great. So, and by the way, the one with asterisks are the ones where it says, this was to fulfill. So, Matthew specifically says, what happened right here is a fulfillment of this messianic expectation. So, which is about two-thirds of them. Says it all the time. That, that's, that, this is to fulfill, that's not found ever in any of the, the Gospels. Right, got it? So, let's go to Matthew 1, 20 through 23, which is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. Right, I'm going to do like four of these just real quickly just to give you a feeling for how Matthew uses the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy to explain Jesus to us. Not just to say, see, he's the Messiah. That's what I did last night. Last night I said, see, he's the Messiah. I didn't use that to teach about Jesus. I use it as evidence that he is the Messiah. That's not what Matthew is necessarily doing. He's using it to explain it, to teach about Jesus. So Matthew 1, 20 through 23. But after he had considered all this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because he is conceived in her. He, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. By the way, not from the Father. Okay, <laughs> for what it's worth. All right, anyway, uh, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel. Great. That's, isn't that so awesome that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy? But notice what he's teaching here. What he's teaching us is that Jesus is son of man and son of God. 
right off the bat, like right here. Jesus is Son of Man and Son of God. Literally. Well, Son of Woman, Son of Human, and Son of God. Alright? And it says that Jesus is God with us. That's who Jesus is. He is God with us. It's interesting because Matthew 1.22 says Jesus is God with us. And then Matthew 28.20 says Jesus is God with us. Isn't that interesting? This is not an accident. Alright? So Matthew 1.22, Jesus, who's Jesus? Simple. He's God with us. That's who he is. And the very last verse in Matthew 28 is, who's Jesus? He's God who is with us always to the end of the age. So in Matthew 1, 20 through 23, he tells us that Jesus is man, son of man, son of woman to be specific, and son of God. And that he's God with us. There you go. Matthew 2, 15. Let's go there. Again, the point is not to teach you a lesson necessarily, but to explain Matthew. All right, Matthew one, uh, Matthew two fifteen. Here's another one. This is kind of an obscure one. I'll start in verse fourteen. So he got up, took the child and mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, "Out of Egypt I called my son." Now, first of all, if you go to Hosea eleven verse one, if you read it, it says, "Out of Egypt I called my son." And it's like, that's a Messianic prophecy? That's talking about Israel. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you if, on the internet, you'll see people complain all the time. That, that Matthew is totally taking that passage out of context. Now, that person doesn't understand Jesus. Doesn't understand who he is. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the fact that out of Egypt, they called my son. Because out of Egypt... God called Joseph. Right? Because Joseph was a slave in Egypt. And out of Egypt, God called Moses. Because Moses was born a slave in Egypt. And out of Egypt, God called Israel. Because Israel was born a slave. So naturally, where did Jesus go when Herod was trying to kill him? down to Egypt because Egypt is where God tried to kill baby Moses because baby Moses there was a king who had this whacked out idea that a poor innocent Jewish baby would replace him just like Herod had this whacked out idea that a poor innocent Jewish baby would replace him they were both right and wrong at the same time you know because out of Egypt I called my son So who does God call out of Egypt? He calls you and me out of Egypt. Right. So that's that's who Jesus is. He's the one who came out of Egypt because Jesus was at the right hand of the Father, right? What did he come? He came down and became a slave, Philippians 2, 5. Because if you want to save the slaves, you have to become a slave. So Moses is in the palace of Pharaoh. What's he do? He leaves the palace just like Jesus left from the right hand of the Father and he went and lived amongst the slaves just like Jesus came and lived amongst the slaves. 
So first of all, those who say that Matthew's taking this out of context, they don't know what they're talking about. Second of all, you see how we learn about Jesus through fulfillment of prophecy. Number three, uh, Matthew 2.23, just down the page. All right, verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and went out and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that it would be called a Nazarene. Now, where in the Bible does it say that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene? People say, it's not even in the Bible. Matthew, he's making it all up. This guy, he's really trying to create a case that's not even there. Typical of these Jesus fake people. You know, that's, that's what the, the liberal scholars say. Well, that's not true. In fact, Jan and I were in Nazareth just about a year and a half ago. And we went to this place that had this olive grove. And, and the guy was doing on, on, on the tour, he says, this is Jesus. He pointed at the shoots coming out of the olive tree. Because the word for branch or shoot is not Sarah. You know what town Jesus was born in? He was born in branch. Because the Messiah is the branch of Jesse. Wow. That prophecy, there's, that's in lots of places. That's in lots of places, like Jeremiah 23, 5, or Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, or Zechariah 3, 8, or Zechariah 6, 12, or Ezekiel, or several other places. Jesus is the branch. He is the one who will come from the stump of Jesse. And Jesus was literally born in branch. And besides, he is the branch and the root, the one who comes from Jesse of the tribe of David. So there you go. Uh, one more, just one more. I've got a couple more on my list, but I, I need to get move along. Let's go to Matthew 12, 15 through 21. Again, Matthew, unlike the other Gospels, it presents Jesus to us through the way he fulfilled the messianic expectation, right? Does that mean that the other Gospels aren't right or something like that? No, so that's just that perspective. Okay, Matthew 12. All right, Matthew 12, 15 through 21. Here's another one. Uh, okay, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. But he warned them not to tell others about him. This was fulfilled, was written through the prophet Isaiah. Remember that? Remember the ones with asterisks? You see, uh, Matthew 12? Yeah, that's one of the ones with an asterisk. So what prophecy did he fulfill? Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the nations, but he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Who is Jesus? He is the most powerful king who ever lived, who's humble and riding on a donkey. That's who Jesus is. He's the humble servant and the powerful king. That's who he is. So again, Jesus is revealed through the way he fulfills prophecy. Matthew 21, etc., lots of different things. All right?
So uh, I could go on there, but that's enough. We now know about Matthew. Let me talk about Luke. Okay. Okay, more fulfilled prophecy. Luke. So, again, the theme of, of Mark is, is uh, suffering Savior and servant, Messiah, suffering Savior, Savior and servant of mankind. Uh, and uh, Matthew is the, the one who fulfills the law. What about Luke? Luke's take on Jesus is very, very different from that of either Mark or Matthew. All right, so which is the correct one? They're all correct. Aren't you glad you have Luke's? View though, isn't it good to have a Gentile? Aren't wasn't that smart planning on God's part to have a Gentile explain Jesus to us? That's really great. So in Luke, Jesus is the Savior of the world. In Matthew, he's the Savior of the Jews and the world, but the Jews primarily. So the theme of Luke, in my opinion, is God's salvation, as predicted by the prophets, has arrived in the coming Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Savior of the world. And now his salvation is spreading throughout the world. So, this is the international, the all nations Jesus. He's the Jesus of the poor and the rich, the mighty and the weak, the male and the female, the Jew and the Gentile. Theme verse of of Luke. I have two of them. Let's read Luke 2.11. You could read Luke 19, 9 through 10. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. All right. By the way, salvation in Luke is primarily about now. Salvation is already but not yet. Salvation, if you're a Christian, salvation happened to you. If you're a Christian, salvation is happening to you. And if you're a Christian, salvation will happen to you. But Luke is primarily about salvation happening to you. He says, save yourselves, not from damnation, but from this corrupt generation. Mm-hmm. Right? So Luke has a different perspective on salvation. Not that one is right and the other is wrong. I think they both complete the biblical idea of what salvation is. So Luke 2.11. Uh, again, this is my choice. Don't let me spoil it for you. Read Luke. You come up with your own theme verse. In fact, don't choose Luke 2.11 because that's too easy. All right? Uh, so this is my version. I probably found this in a commentary anyway. I probably stole it. I don't, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This to me is the theme of Luke. In Luke, Jesus revealed as, as Messiah primarily through his ministry. He was revealed as Messiah primarily not through the fulfillment of prophecy, but through the way he lived his life and the way he interacted with people. Jesus ministries primarily to the sick, to the outcast, to the downtrodden, to the poor, to women, and to Gentiles. And Matthew, Mark, and John, you see... Quite little of that, actually. Not that Jesus didn't do it. That's just not what their message typically focuses in on. So in Matthew, Jesus fulfills specific events that are predicted. Whereas in Luke, Jesus fulfills the messianic pattern in his ministry. 
rather than in specific historical prophecies, although there's a few of those in there, a couple here and there. Jesus' concern is for outsiders, for the poor, for sinners, for Samaritans. Almost every mention of Samaritans is in Luke. In Luke, the Samaritans are the good guys, and the Jews are the wretches. Reversal of fortune. I mean, try to count the number of times somebody that's on the top ends up on the bottom and somebody on the bottom ends up on the top. If you think about it, you could just, even without looking at the Bible, think of stories where somebody is on the top, they end up on the bottom. Somebody is on the bottom, they end up on the top. All right? Then when you look it up, oh, that's in Luke. All right? It's, it's not an accident because that's Luke's picture of what the Messiah is doing. He's overturning things. He's causing a revolution, a social revolution, and a spiritual revolution. All right, a few examples of this. So Jesus reeled his Messiah primarily through his ministry to the sick, downtrodden women, outcasts, and Gentiles. All right, uh, Jesus revealed his Messiah through his ministry to the sick. His concern is for poor sinners, etc. Reversal of fortune: poor become rich, rich become poor. Emphasis on women. I mean, there, I, I, it's in my notes somewhere, but there's something like 13 or 14 different women that G, that's mentioned in Luke that aren't mentioned in any of the other Gospels. And this is not an accident. I guarantee you it's not an accident. All right, so Mary. I mean, in Matthew, the birth story is about Joseph and Mary. And in Luke, jo- Joseph barely even exists. It's all on Mary. <laughs> Come on. Of course, they're both true. I'm not trying to make one right, the other wrong. The fact that I have two different perspectives, first of all, let's appreciate it, let's understand why, and then let's learn from that. I mean, everything about Mary makes her the perfect character in Luke, which also means perfect friend to Jesus. First of all, she was young. She was female. And in Judaism, the young get no respect. In our culture, we worship the young people. I mean... We live for the for the kids, you know. It's like, you know, take some time for yourself, you know what I'm saying? All right, so she was young, she was female, she was poor, she was defenseless and vulnerable. Perfect. Perfect character in the book of Luke. I'm not saying they're not all true. They're absolutely true. You know, the greatest people of faith in the entire Bible to me are Noah, Abraham and Mary. God comes to her and says, you're going to have a baby. What's that mean? That means you're going to be a social outcast. You're never going to get married. And you're going to live as a poor, uh, rejected person the rest of your life. What's Mary say? It is as you say. It's interesting. The heroes in Luke's account are either very, very young or very, very old. It's kind of interesting. All right, uh, so what does God say about Mary? He says, you are highly favored. Now, from the Jewish perspective, Mary would be highly unfavored. She's female. You know some of the stuff Jewish rabbis said about women. It's, it's embarrassing to quote, you know what I'm saying? I think they said stuff like, I, the, the, I thank God he didn't make me a, Jew, a Samaritan or a woman. Like, uh, you are highly favored. God is with you. And in fact, if you kind of read the entire birth narrative, including Simeon and, uh, what's her name? The old? Anna. Thank you, Anna. 
it, basically what we learn is the old will be productive, the barren will be fruitful, those who are disgraced will not no longer be disgraced, those who uh, have high favor will be taken out of that position. It's all about reversal of fortune. Okay, then there's the birth of Jesus. It's announced to who? Shepherds. I'm sorry, but shepherds were not exactly on the top of the social scale. Okay? The ministry of salvation. A light to who? Luke 2.32? To the Gentiles. Jesus is going to be lifted up as awesome. No, he's going to be a sign spoken against. He's going to be treated as if he's the lowest of the low. Again, that's Luke. All right, let's go to uh, Luke 4.18. If you want to understand Luke, I would say maybe a great place to start is to go to the first sermon that Jesus preached in Luke. All right, now before you actually open to Luke 4.18, let me ask you a question. All right, let's let's imagine Jesus is going to preach his first sermon. So what do you think the subject of his first sermon would be? You know, don't raise your hand. This is just a rhetorical. Just think about it. So Jesus preaches for sure. What's he going to preach? Sacrifice or, I don't know, what's he going to preach about the kingdom of God? Or what's he going to preach about? Well, let's read what Jesus preached about in his first sermon. Luke 4. All right. By the way, this may or may not have been his actual first sermon, but it is the first sermon in the book of Luke which is significant. All right, so he went into Nazareth. It's on the Sabbath day. He's reading in the synagogue. Uh, He unrolled the scroll of Isaiah, and here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to send me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. Again, the gospel is for the poor, the oppressed, women, those who are outcasts. They will find place in the kingdom of God. And he rolled up the scroll and he said, this is fulfilled in your presence today. They said, all right, we're going to kill you. They weren't so happy about that. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind. All right, release of the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. Right? And then what happens? Alright? And then he goes out and he does it. Okay? Because if you look, in starting in John 4.31, what he does is, in Luke 4.31-37, he frees prisoners. In Luke 4.38-44, he heals the sick. And in Luke 4.41, he releases the oppressed. And in Luke 4.43, he announces the Lord's favor. So Jesus' ministry, Jesus is revealed through his reaching out to the poor, to the oppressed, to the women, to the Gentiles, to the Samaritans, anybody who nobody respected, especially the Jews didn't respect, that's who Jesus announced his uh, ministry to and for. And all this points out the breaking out of the kingdom of God. Okay, uh, so... Uh, in Luke, the poor are saved before the rich every single time. Right. There's the rich fool. And he says, invite the poor and the lame and the blind to your banquets. Mm-hmm. Yes. The Pharisees sin, they love money. And there's a lot of stuff about money. 
And in Luke, I'm telling you, the rich are not put in a good position. Alright? And the poor are awesome. Where do you think the parable of the widow with the two mites is? Where do you think it is? First of all, she's a woman and she's poor. So where do you think you're going to find that story? It's going to be in Luke. And, and, and the Samaritans, like I said, are always the good guys. The Jews are always the bad guys. James and John say, call down fire on the Samaritans. And Jesus says, this is going to be worse for Bethsaida and Cana and all those other places. Let's just stop doing that. The parable of the what Samaritan? The good Samaritan. And by the way, the word good is not in there, but it's pretty good. The only leper who returns to praise Jesus, of course, is the Samaritan. And I'm telling you, and Luke, women are always more spiritual than men. Mary is more spiritual than Joseph. And Elizabeth is more spiritual than Zechariah. And it's just, it's just the way it is. And maybe it's actually the way it is, uh, just in general anyway. I don't know. You decide for yourself. But the, the, the ones with the greatest faith, almost always, not always, but almost always are women. So you have the faith of Elizabeth, of Mary, of Anna, the widow of Nain. The woman who anoints Jesus' feet. There are 13 women mentioned in Luke. Not just their name, but actual characters in Luke mm-hmm. that are not found in any other book of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think there's a message there. Right? Hopefully you're getting that message. Mm-hmm. Okay? Women support Jesus financially. They're healed of bleeding. Mary and Martha, they're... The, I'm telling you, Mary and Martha were Jesus' best friends. Mary and Martha and probably Lazarus. They're his best friends. Crippled woman healed on the Sabbath. The poor widow, the women that were the chief witnesses at, at, at the crucifixion. They're also the first witnesses of the resurrection. All right, how about parables about the poor? I don't have time for all this sort of stuff. Look at that. Wow. Yeah, right? And if you want to do a lesson about Jesus and the poor, you just all you need is Luke. You don't need to go anywhere else. And you better have about three weeks if you want to talk about Jesus and the poor. All right. So we have the question, what about, is it okay to be rich and, and have a good job? Sure, that's okay, but if, if we're going to kind of let Jesus speak, all right, true, there's nothing wrong with that. And if anybody told you it's sinful to have a good job and, you know, you need to give up your job just because it's good for that very reason, that's not true. But, you know, let's just look at the overall emphasis, and I'd say it, it certainly favors the poor, that's for sure. The bottom line is, the, Bi- the New Testament always favors those who are out of power. Always. Always favors those who are out of power. So in America, who's in power? White men, okay? So there you go. Sorry, white men, but if you want to get super lot of pats on the back, Jesus would probably say, wait your turn. Okay? I'm just saying. All right. Uh, nothing wrong with being men or white. They're both absolutely awesome. <laughs> okay, Jesus and the rich. All right, the rich fool, Jesus and the rich. Right, look at this, folks. I mean, <laughs> but I'm just skip all this stuff. All right, now let's get to John. So I'm spending about 20 minutes in Luke, about 20 minutes in Matthew, spending like five or 10 minutes each in John and Mark, and then we'll do plus one. Plus one. Oh, I believe there's really five Jesuses. Come on now. There's five. Let's, let's review. What's the Jesus of Mark? Action figure. Man, he's, he's going, he's doing it. Man, his ministry is cranking all the time. 
If you want to preach a cranking ministry, go to Mark. And it's right there in the Bible. There's nothing wrong with preaching a cranking ministry. Because, man, I'm telling you, his ministry cranked. It's not, it's not wrong to do that. Okay, what about the Jesus of Matthew? He's the one who is revealing and fulfilling and explaining the Old Testament and how the connection between the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the, he's the Savior. He's the Messiah. All right, and Luke is the one who is uh, the Savior for every, everyone, obviously, but especially for the Gentiles and the oppressed. Okay, now, John. John is the most unique of the Gospels by far. The other three are called the Synoptic Gospels, not because of all the sin in there, but S-Y-N means same, right? Synthesis, together, joining. They're called the Synoptic Gospels because they can easily be sort of laid out like that. You can kind of see how they're parallel. And in fact, almost certainly John was written later. I, I, I can't prove it, but I'd say all the other three, the Synoptic Gospels were all written before 70 AD because they all have the destruction of Jerusalem as a prophecy because that happened in 70 AD. In, in, the, in the book of John, the, the, you get the strong sense that the temple doesn't even exist anymore. Can't prove it, but it's, it's extremely likely. So it's after 70 AD. So when John is including stuff in his gospel, probably he's purposely saying, well, been there, done that. So let me do this other one. Now, he includes the feeding of the 5,000. There's things that are common, but there's far more different in John. And in and, and, and John, um, the whole tenor of the book, it, it's very different. For example, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is, he's not telling anybody who he is, right? Why didn't he do that? Why did he hesitate to say who he was? What did he say to his mother? My time has not yet come. But in John, he's just flat out, this is who I am. Now, in John though, we're usually seeing um, interviews. We're seeing him talking to individuals. He does very little, not that he does no preaching in John, but he does very little preaching in John. Now, I'm not saying he didn't do preaching. Certainly not all this stuff happened. But John chooses individual um, interviews. And there Jesus actually did say who he was, like pretty clearly. Of course, he also did it in John 6 in a public setting. I, I, I don't want to completely undermine that, but... The bottom line is, in, in, in John, you find out who he is. John 1.1 1, 1 through 1.18, there it is. This is who he is. And then, and there you go. So, uh, John is revealed. So, this is the Jesus of John. In John, Jesus is revealed through his miracles and through his statements about himself. So, we have the miracles and the I am statements. Okay, the miracles and the I am statements. And we could say a lot more. There's so much more that's unique about John. The central theme of John, at least in my opinion, is Jesus is the divine Son of God who reveals the Father, providing eternal life to all who believe in Him. And I think if you think about John, you could see why... I came up with that for what it's worth as a theme. So in John, Jesus is the divine Son of God who reveals the Father not through the fulfillment of prophecy, not through His ministry, but through 
telling them this is who God is through his miracles and through his statements about himself. I would say a possible theme verse is good old John 3.16. You can't improve on that. I know it's kind of boring and you know, can't you put another verse up there at those football games? But it's a pretty good one. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all believe in him who should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the theme of John right there. I'm going to go for John 1.14 though. That would be, would be my personal selection of a theme verse in John. All right, it says, The Word became flesh. He made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son of God who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is John in a nutshell. And, you know, and John told us the purpose. It's in John 20. What is the purpose of the book of John? Most biblical writers don't tell you the purpose of why they wrote, but John tells us why. John 20. I, I write these things so you may believe. And constantly throughout the book, he, uh, Jesus asked people, do you believe this? And I'm telling you right now, when Jesus asked somebody, do you believe this, why did John put that in there? Right. Well, because he said that, but so that you will ask whether you believe that. Because the purpose of John is to create belief in unbelievers. The only purpose? No, but certainly the principal purpose. I mean, it's what he said, so I believe it. Right, so, but these are written so you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. In fact, you could call that the theme of verse of John if you want to. Theme of verse? Okay, that's the Italian version. <laughs> okay, great. So there are seven I am statements. Not six, not eight, seven. And again, here is how Jesus reveals who he is. And it's not just through these seven. I mean, I could have another list of 15 or 20 things that Jesus said, but... To me, if you think it's an accident that there's seven I am statements, I want to correct you. It is not an accident. Just, if you study the numbers of things in different settings, the way the Bible is put together, you can study it on so many levels, it would drive you crazy. The intricacies of how these things are done. Now, do you think Jesus, do you think John chose seven on purpose or that God inspired him and it was just, I don't know which it is. I don't really know. And of course, there's seven miraculous signs. I mean, I think it's not a coincidence. And the connection between the sayings and the signs is intimate in John, right? An intimate connection between the sayings about himself and the miracles that he works. So why did he work those miracles? In order to validate the sayings about himself. Why did Jesus work miracles in Luke? No, that's Matthew. He did it in Luke to help the blind and the lame and the poor, the woman with bleeding. Now, I'm not saying that, that by the way, there's exceptions, but that's pretty much the case. All right, so, so Luke selected his material under inspiration of God to emphasize his theme. Got it? Seven I am statements, seven miraculous signs. Uh, this, this slide represents what I already told you, that Jesus does miracles and he makes claims about himself. The claim is validated by the miracle. Got it? Okay. I could say so much more about John. I could do a 15-hour class on John. Have me down some weekend. I'll do it. All right. Now, all right. Uh, four Gospels plus one. Had anybody get... Oh. 
Uh, uh, anybody guess what the one is? Yes. Hebrews. Of course it's Hebrews. Awesome. All right. So we have the action figure, suffering servant. We have the one who fulfills the messianic expectation. We have the one who reveals the Messiah through his through his uh, care of the needy, the poor, the oppressed, etc. We have the one who revealed himself through his miracles and through his statements about himself. Then we have the fifth Jesus, and that's the high priest. The priesthood of Jesus is not even mentioned outside of Hebrews. Not even once. Alright? In fact, it, I mean, if you, if you read our book on Hebrews, you read the introduction. Hebrews... I mean, we don't know who wrote it. And so, how did it even end up in the Bible? My, my claim in the book is that if I had to just simply lay down all the New Testament books and ask, which are the most obvious and inspired of all, to me, it'd be Hebrews. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hebrews is so crazy, obviously inspired. It's like, how could anybody have ever thought that it didn't belong in the New Testament? Yeah. All right. So in Jesus, we have a different. I'm sorry. In Hebrews, we have a different Jesus. Now it's the same Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Don't don't you dare quote me and say postmodernist, you know, deconstructing Jesus and all that stuff. I'm not deconstructing, but probably I am sort of, kind of, sort of deconstructing, kind of in a way, sort of, but not with the intent to have five different Jesus. Just to point out that we have five different. Pictures of Jesus. And if we didn't have Hebrews, probably the idea that he's a high priest would not even have entered your mind. Probably would not. But that's another thing that Jesus is. Think about it, go home, kind of study it for yourself, and I think you'll you'll agree with me on that. So I don't know. That's why I thought we'll spend a few minutes on this last Jesus, which is the Jesus of Hebrews, who is a high priest. Let's study Hebrews 4, 14 through 5, 6. We're going to go about another 15 minutes. If you have energy, we'll do a question and answer. If you don't, then we won't. Okay, and you get to decide. All right, Hebrews 4. I'm really into this stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, good stuff. By the way, when you read the book, uh, the part that uh, that Robert did is stop, stopped at Hebrews four thirteen, and I started Hebrews four fourteen. I, I like he wanted to do all chapter five, four, and I said no, I, no. Uh-uh. You have to share. No, I can't have it. Uh-uh. Anyway, let's read it. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence because Jesus is the action figure because of Jesus I am statements no because Jesus is our high priest Mm. not that those other things wouldn't mean it would still be true Uh, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need every high priest is selected from among people 
and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So what, what is a priest? And what do priests do? Now the word priest in Latin is pontifex. Alright? And in fact, the Pope unfortunately calls himself pontifex maximus. <laughs> that means high priest. On judgment day, there's going to have to be a little answering for that one. Wow. Seriously. Thunder. That's actual thunder. That's Is that part of your lesson? (laughs) You planned that. All right. Anyway, so a priest is a bridge. A priest makes a connection. The job of a priest is to connect between man and, for the pagans, the gods, or for us, the God, the the one God. In order to be a priest, you need to know the language of God and the language of human beings. You know, in Hebrews 5, it says, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Oh, are we saying he was a sinner before that? No, the word suffering means complete. Because, you know, the priest, the, the, the actual high priest, you know, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about how they're the same and they're different. Jesus is the same as the high priest, and he's different from the high priest. He's both, all right? But one way Jesus, the high priest, they definitely get us. I mean, the, the high priest. Now, they kept dying. That was a problem. But, you know, they got it. The high priest get us. The reason they get us is because they're us. But the high priest, they're really going to struggle to explain God. I mean, seriously. So then there's Jesus. Does he get God? Yeah, I think he's got that language down. But he, did he get us? Well, not really. So what did he do? He became us. That's, I mean, I'm not saying that's the only reason he became us, but in Hebrews, that's the reason he became us. He became us so that he could be the perfect high priest. Because the perfect high priest has to be completely conversant, absolutely fluent in the language of people, and completely fluent in the language of God. And Jesus is that perfect high priest. It says in Hebrews 4.15 that he can empathize. The word is sympatheo, 
which means literally feel same. Could Jesus feel same if he hadn't come here? We could debate that. You know, I guess. I, I, I guess. But, you know, telling somebody who's been raped, I, I understand what you're feeling. If you haven't been raped, just don't say that. You know, you feel lonely. Did Jesus ever feel lonely? You feel rejected. Did Jesus ever feel rejected? You feel tired. Did Jesus ever feel tired? You feel attacked. Did Jesus ever feel attacked? All right, Jesus felt every single thing we feel. Therefore, he can sympathize with us. To the Greeks, the idea of a sympathetic God is like jumbo shrimp. The idea that God would be sympathetic, would feel what we feel. Because to the Greeks, if, if gods felt what we felt, then they wouldn't be gods anymore. But this is the Christian God. The one who is God is a priest. And that's weird. He connects between us and God. I thought he was God. He is God. But see, that's Trinity. Because Trinity is about a relationship. It's about an intimate relationship. And we have an intimate relationship with God because Jesus is our high priest. That's why we can approach God's throne with confidence. Because Jesus has been there and he's done that. He is the pioneer and the perfecter. He is the pioneer. He went to the real tabernacle. And he's there and he's going to show us the way. He's like Daniel Boone, right? Daniel Boone went, you know, and he was, he was the pioneer. He blazed the trail. All right? And he left the little blaze marks on the trail. Jesus did that for us. How much greater of a high priest is Jesus than those high priests the Jews had? I mean, oh my goodness. You know, Jesus is not the, the boss up in the air-conditioned office. You know, the factory, all these workers down sweating their butts off on the floor. And the, 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 the boss up in the office, the air-conditioned, like, yeah, do this. and Hey, hey, you need more efficient. Hey, how come, you know, you need to work more work there. Blah, 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 blah. Not, not our high priest. Amen. No, he got out of that air-conditioned office. And he sweated and he worked that machine and he, he got his finger bruised and, and he, he worked long hours and he knows what we are all about. Amen. That is our high priest, that is Jesus. That's awesome. Amen. Like Moses who was living in comfort in Pharaoh's palace and left Pharaoh's palace to live the life of a slave wow. so he could slave the, save the slave. That is Jesus, our high priest. You know, um, Jesus is like the high priest in a few ways. For example, he can relate to us, Hebrews 4.15. He makes intercession for us before God, Hebrews 4.16. He offers gifts and sacrifices, Hebrews 5.1. He was selected by God among men, Hebrews 5.1. He represents man to God, Hebrews 5.1. But you know what? Jesus is a much better high priest because he serves in the real tabernacle. The one on earth is like a shadow. All right? It's kind of, it uses the word hupodigma, which means kind of like a, like a diorama. Old people, remember when you were a kid, you, met, you took the shoe box and you put a little, right. The temple that the high priest served in is kind of like that compared to the real one. And so which would you rather have, a high priest serving in the shoe box, you know, the, the diorama or the real thing? 
All right? He, he was tempted, yet he did not sin. The high priest couldn't make that claim. He didn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sin, because on the Day of Atonement, first, the high priest would buy a bull with his own money, kill it, and make a sacrifice for his own sin. Then he could go and make sacrifices for the people. Jesus didn't have to do that. Also in Hebrews 5, 6, he's a priest forever. Now, which would, would you rather have? A priest who keeps dying on you or a priest who's a priest forever? forever. Much better high priest. Much better high priest. A priest from the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5, 6. Now, that's pretty awesome. All right, so that's Jesus, the high priest. Uh, so, again, Hebrews 5, verse 2. Let me go back there. Just I want to park there a little bit more. He is able to deal gently with us. Right? Earlier it said, sympathia. Same feeling. This is metropathia, which means basically deal gently with us. Sympathetic feeling. Bear with us without becoming irritated. Jesus, well, he did get irritated occasionally. But relatively, Jesus can relate. He understands you feel lonely, he's felt lonely. You feel tired, he felt tired. You wanted to pull back, he wanted to pull back. You didn't want to do God's will. Jesus didn't want to do God's will, but he did. What an amazing high priest we have. Let's read verse 7 through 10, and then we'll finish out here. And take some questions if you have the energy for it. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obeyed him. Obey him. It was designated by God to be most high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He learned obedience through suffering? What's that mean? I think what it meant is through suffering he learned what it meant to obey. Through suffering. He didn't, it's not like he was ever disobedient to his father. He was never disobedient to his parents nor to his father. But he learned what it meant to us to obey through suffering. Right? He, he learned obedience in the sense of experiencing obedience in the way we experience obedience. He did not sin, but he experienced all the consequences of human sin, even though he didn't sin. That is the great high priest we have in Jesus. And verse 9, he was made perfect, teleos. And perfect means complete, because in, until Jesus came here, he was not a perfect high priest. He was not. He was without sin, but that's not the definition of perfect in Hebrews. The definition of perfect is complete, full, mature. And then Jesus became a priest according to Melchizedek, but that's a whole other lesson. I'm not going to do that now. Okay, great. So, I have no idea what time it is. 12.30. All right, great. So, we're good. So, we could do 15 minutes of question and answer or not. It's up to you. Any quick questions? Let's give it up to John. I'm going to take only 
two or three. I know everybody's really tired and hungry. I'm tired and hungry, by the way. I'll take two or three. Yes. All right. Um, when you talked about the, the seven miraculous signs, what, um, obviously he did more miracles than seven. Like what makes those in particular? Uh, uh, I believe John chose seven because of the whole thing about the number seven. Yeah. Oh, so the, oh, perfect. Why, why, did, uh, why, did, why seven churches? Were there only seven churches in Asia? Seven. All right, so the, 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 this whole thing with the number of seven being the number of perfection. With that, so, uh, again, I, I'm guessing, I, let's just pretend. Uh, Jesus listed the top 20 miracles. All right, I've got to narrow it down to seven. I, I'm not saying that's what he did, because it could be that God was the one who put the whole seven thing into his mind. You know, uh, all the numbers, the, 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 the way that the number 12 is used, and the way the number 3 is used, the way the number 40 is used, these things... It's like, you could, you could write a book this thick on all this stuff. Did the writers figure this out on their own or not? And my answer is, I don't know. It's all there. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, uh, just curious. When uh, Jesus when he spoke to the Pharisees, he refers to himself as the third person and the son of man that she talked to. Well, I was kind of curious, why, why would he, like, what is he That's a about? cultural thing. Okay. He's asking, why did Jesus use the third person? I don't know. I, you'd have to ask, like, a super expert on these things. Oh. I'm going to guess that in the Near Eastern context, that was more common than it is in our context. Okay. Except sports stars. They, and the son of... And, and presidents. Okay. Yes. Certain presidents. All right, yes. In your opinion, which I am statement is connected to him walking on water? I, there's not a one-to-one connection. I, 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 there is a loose connection. So I, I, I'm afraid I don't have an answer for that. I mean, put it this way. If you thought about it, you could you could put the seven I am statements and the seven uh, miracles, and you you could make about three or four connections. And if you wanted to complete it, you probably could. And that might be fun. And it could be that you'll find out something that I never thought about. But I, I don't have an answer for your question. Sorry, this one here, then that one there. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Uh, a lot of people think the quote the angel of the Lord is Jesus. <coughs> Uh, but these are, this is one of those questions that, uh, for example, uh, in Abraham, three angels came to, in, in Genesis 3, angels came to Abraham. Some people think there were two that were sort of regular angels. Then there was the one that was the super angel. And some people speculate that that was Jesus. Uh, because angel means messenger, Jesus messenger. That, that's a fun, a fun thing to think about. Whether or not Jesus appears... Uh, he appears through types prefigured foreshadows. He's all over the Old Testament. But whether he actually appears in the Old Testament is debated. So I'll just say, could be, could not be. We don't know. That's two in a row I said I don't know two. Right? I'm not used to having two. I don't know twice in a row. But you know what? If you don't know, you probably should say I don't know. That's good. That's good okay, question. I saw another one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, appreciate what you shared. When you uh, pull in the material from your website... Go to evidence for Christianity. Yeah, just type it in. For example, if you want to find, I, I mentioned the lesson on Revelation. You know, just type in Revelation. Uh, I, I said I said a lot of things that are there. Uh, common sense, you'll find them all like pretty quickly. There's probably 200 PowerPoints. Uh, there's probably 500 audio. I mean, almost every book in the Bible. There's all kinds of stuff. Right. There's a lot of other places to go, but that's one place to go for a lot of stuff. It's all free. That's good. 
easy to find, too. Bye. Right, thank you, everybody. Pick up a few books on the way home. Yeah.